Good morning, everybody. Yeah, now you're definitely... Hey, I'm Pastor Jeff Lee, Pastor Rod Randall, Pastor Bill Nelson. Am I all three of those, or do I get to choose who I want to be today? So, oh, I see on the back one, I get, I get my choice. I can't turn my mic up, but they can turn my mic up if they so deem it appropriately. This is the beauty of being the pastor. You can only do what they do. If they shut me off, then and I'm all done, and that's it for today. So I like that hum. That's exciting. That kind of feels like that adds some intensity to the service, right? Is the Lord coming, and the hum gets louder, and the, the messages, and then we all kind of oscillate and vibrate with that somehow. I don't know. I was outside trying to wake up this morning. I don't know about you guys, but I'm done with the gray gloom. I'm just done. I think we need to have like a prayer session today. No message, just like a 24 hours of prayer to say, the Lord, done. No more June gloom in May. We're done. Okay? June gone. Oh, wait. June's coming up. Man, that means even more gloom. June gloom in May. Oh, my gosh. I'm so despondent. We need to pray for our Oregon and Seattle friends right now because this is it's too much to ask. I mean, we're paying $7 a gallon for gas. We should at least get a break on sunshine to be able to go outside, right, and do something. You know, when I'm not fired up like this, my brain has a tendency to wander, so I should forewarn you already this morning. But it's okay. I'm, I'm always glad to be here, and uh, I appreciate your prayers for my mom. Um, she continues to have some recovering time or whatever, but she had a miraculously good day in the hospital, which is interesting to see how God works all that out, right? Your life is pretty overwhelming. They're both 87. We're trying to figure out the next stages of life for my parents, and they haven't been very willing to see that kind of writing on the wall. But like my kitchen that slowly fell apart in front of me, Sometimes the writing's on the wall, and, you know, we're chopping. I was chopping something on the cutting board, and I hit the cutting board, and the cutting board just fell in two pieces. It's like, sometimes if you wait too long, it's a little harder to make those decisions. So keep my mom and dad in prayer um, as they continue to heal. But thank you for those prayers, because I feel like that one day alone, I called my brother. The visitation was so good I had with my mom in the hospital, right? Like, you got to get down there and see mom. I don't know what's going on, but praise God for it. So thank you guys for your prayers, Noah, and and seriously, the kitchen, everything else is going good. Life is entertaining. And we had babies that we did baptize. We were real excited about that. And we also have babies that are ready to be baptized again. So as soon as we're done with baptism, we're going to fire up another session on that. And let me just speak to all of you about the baptism. I know it's a huge struggle to go up there. And uh, somebody was even worried about water temp. Don't worry. We have that archaic you know, thermostat, the giant golden bar that heats up to about 700 degrees. That water will be toasty warm, but the most important thing you can be thinking about is to publicly give your testimony to this congregation and know now that your testimony gets to go out into the airways, right? That is the battle that's going on. It's not just to go get in the water. You've done that before. Although I think when Tom Phipps told us that that was Tom's first time fully being immersed in public, which is interesting to know that Tom's never taken a bath, I guess, then, because <laughs> that'd be the same thing, Tom, but remember... 80 years old when he got baptized. So there's no time like the present to respond. Adam, thank you, Max, for your beautiful thing about getting baptized. 90 in your 90s. Max has got you on that as well. But the beautiful thing that I really love about the baptism, though, is the opportunity for you to give that testimony, right? I mean, if 91% of believers will never lead anyone to the Lord, then part of that struggle is the fact that you don't have ownership of your testimony, so what a baptism does for me is it just reminds the church that we need to know what our story is, right? We need to know what our journey of faith is. And that opportunity then when the, someone says, you know, I've really noticed some things in you and, and blah, 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 blah. And you, your thought is like, what am I going to share with them? You share your testimony. Well, let me just tell you, this is what God has done. And so that baptism really triggers so much for a family. And for the one family, I don't know if they're here this morning, I'm looking around, but I, there's a whole family that's waiting to be done. And so the struggle for that family, keep praying for this family. It's a mom, it's a dad, it's a son. And if they can give their story to you guys, like I know the story, I was there, I walked through with them. But I just feel like any message we could ever give is fabulous and God's word is powered by the spirit of God. But a testimony of a family's journey to the altar, a testimony of God's faithfulness to them, to get to the water is just going to be awesome. So keep us in prayer as we pray for all that. We are in Acts chapter 3. I will be finishing chapter 3 today. I'm in the second half of it, so I'll be working on verses 11 through 26. 
And it's the, I call this message the miraculous message because as of last week when Peter went uh, into the temple, they had this opportunity to heal this man who had been lame for 40 years sitting by this gate. And because of this healing, it's now going to trigger a secondary event. And that's what we're going to focus on today. And I can't help but think about one thing when I think about miraculous healings and secondary events. It's just the simple fact of healing created an opportunity to share or evoke the name of Christ. And so this morning as I get ready to pray, I want you guys to be thinking about events in your life where God has done something miraculous. And was there an opportunity to share in that? And maybe in the future in your life, when God does something miraculous or you see something miraculous, just realize the power of a miraculous event is it draws people in. And with that in mind, I think the great, wonderful opportunity here is to see that we always want to use any opportunity we can to, when people gather to evoke the name of Christ. Father God, this morning I come to you and I'm just grateful for just the struggle that life is. I know just like I said, thinking about my parents this morning and thinking about all the different things that families have to do to get up and to get to church. Just life in general has presented lots of challenging opportunities. But the reality is that the faith that we have, Father, is fueled by the words of God's word. And we need that. We need fuel, just like our car needs fuel and and our, our hearts need fuel. And this, this, this story this morning is really important for me because it reminds me that Peter is a changed man. He's, he has a changed life. And I feel like this morning, people need to realize that they're changed people. Their old lives have gone away. And as the Spirit of God says, we are a new creation in Christ. Father, may everything that we say today bring honor and glory to and through your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So I think that's a word that I want to key in on today. And it's not necessarily part of the Acts passage, but it was part of my studies and once again, it's the phrase metanoia, metanoia. And metanoia is a Greek phrase which basically talks about the idea of a changed life, okay? And a changed life is something that B.C., before Christ, before Jesus, you saw this person and you knew this person as person, let's just say person A. But in that salvation act, in that restoration act, in whatever it was, that miraculous moment when God spoke or Jesus spoke and that individual responded, that individual became something, metamorphosed into something that they simply could not have been before. And because this passage continues to focus on the works of Peter and what Peter's doing, I just can't help but think about this. Like, in my life, I've had the opportunity to be involved with some changed lives. Some lives that were very much, you know, just standard and kind of someone who was part of maybe even the congregation or like that. But one day, something radically happened, and when that radical change happened, their life changed. I don't know if you guys were here during the time when the Barones were here, but Greg and Lisa Barone were a family from Houston, Texas that came about two years ago, if you've been here lucky enough for two years. They came in one Sunday, he got a job, he works in the oil and gas industry, so he was hired at the refinery in Huntington Beach. And they sat about midstream over here uh, in the church, and they didn't know anybody. And during the meet and greet, a bunch of people came and talked to him. And so meet and greet's kind of old school. We do a lot of old school name tags, donuts. And, uh, and they were, it was fun, because like, they, they're from Houston, Texas, so they had a very perceived California notion. And the church all of a sudden not only responded to them, but they felt like people were actually engaging them on their first day. And so that became like, he has three boys, and as they kind of went about and did the church sampling, which people love to do in Costa Mesa, we have like 50 buffets, so you can sample, you know, fries here, worship here, and, and do that whole thing. They did their thing, and they came back, and they realized something. There was something about this building, not just this historic beauty or whatever. There's something about this building that triggered something in them and said, this is different, and we need to go again. So it came back again, came back again, and each time God continued to kind of bless and encourage them. Well, Greg, as you guys know, when Greg first got here, very mundane, very kind of aloof and kind of mild-mannered. But something in the spirit of God started to move in this man, and something started to move in his kids. His kid joined the youth group, which instantly turned our youth group from three to six. So Jimmy reported on his stuff that week. Youth group doubled, praise God. And we're like, doubled? Oh, we only had three kids. Now we have, six. Now we have like 26 in there, so it's a whole other world. But uh, yeah, the boys were energetic, and it was firing. And all of a sudden, the youth group started to fire. And then Lisa joins in with the women's ministry and gets a lot of connected with Diane and the ladies. And she's starting to fire. And all of a sudden, this family goes from just yeah, we're here for a job, to the Spirit of God starts to move. Now, I think this is crucial to Peter's story because in the end, after we had him for about a year and a half, two years, one day he came to me and he said, you know what, I believe God's calling me in the ministry. And I'm like, dude, you work for the oil industry. How is God calling? 
what? He's like, I know, it makes no sense at all, but can you teach me how to speak? Can you teach me how to make a sermon? Can you teach? Okay, we can start that, but it's, it's a process. You know, this is going to take a while. So he starts coming in, and every week I start sitting with him and start walking him through the Bible and walking him through how to make a message. I just did this with someone else. Ron came in and saw what it takes for message prep because he's speaking to some kids at Juvenile Hall. And after about six months of doing this, he says, I think I'm ready to speak. I'm like, to who? Who do you want to speak to? He's like, the church. I'm like, oh, my gosh, dude. Okay. No seminary training, no nothing. But at two years, he comes up here and gives a Sunday message to the church. And not only is he received, but he's so blessed and so encouraged. It's never stopped, church. We sent them back to Houston under that pretense. They went back to their church and continued to multiply that. And I want you to know that Greg's trying to schedule a time to come out here right now to let you guys know. But i got to let the cat out of the bag a little bit early. Greg has been blessed and ordained by his church and commissioned to go start a new church plant for them. And the name of the church will be Lighthouse. Yes, I mean, he is so on fire, and he wants to come share that story with you. So as soon as we can figure out how to get him out here, I got chills. I got total goosies doing that because there's nothing better than a changed life. And then this, and this Peter, this guy that's about to give this message, it's the affirmation of a changed life. You, it doesn't matter what you saw before. He denied, he denied, he denied, he lied, he lied. He's changed, and he has a new life in him. And so when I think about all the different things that I've seen in that, I don't know if you've seen someone whose life has been changed but that's the kind of mindset I have about Peter as he's getting ready to talk because Peter's doing the same thing. He's like, you know what? I see the people gathering. I saw this at Pentecost. The Spirit of God moved, and I spoke, and they responded. And so once again, this situation's going to have Peter sees the people gathering, and he decides to speak. So with that in mind, let's jump in, and then we'll tear it apart verse by verse and see what the Lord has for us. So starting in Acts chapter 3, verse 11. Why the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running into the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us if by our own power or goodness we have made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, and you handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and yet asked for a murderer to be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead, and we are all witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and now know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him as you all can see. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out and that a time of refreshing may come from the Lord. And they may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, yes, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time God comes for him to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own, and you must listen to everything he tells you. And anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. Indeed, beginning with Samuel and all the prophets who have spoken and foretold these days, and your heirs of the prophets of the covenant God made with your fathers, he said to Ab Abraham, though your offsprings and people, excuse me, through your offsprings, all people on earth will be blessed. But when God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. So let's just start right there with verse 11 and see what he wants to address first of all with him. He says, okay, people are astonished, and when people are astonished, what is the result? They come running to see what it's all about. Now, if it's possible, I tried to get Mark send a picture. Did you find a picture? I didn't even confirm that with you. I have a picture of uh, Salome's court. So what happened is, the, from the gate beautiful, oh, I did get it, praise the Lord. So from the beautiful gate right there in front, you can see where he was sitting. As you walk through the beautiful gate, now that he's healed, he's moved into the inner court. He's now come out from the inner court, and he's now in these areas called Solomon's Porch Colonnade. So this entire gathering on the inside, there's a, quite a few people on the inside of the temple at any given time. 
And an amazing thing about Salonay's porch is these giant columns go through the area. It's very um, architecturally, the sound travels really well. So not only is there an event where people are gathering, and which is traditional for people, when, when there's kind of like some kind of noise and something's popping off, everyone in there is all starting to gather. So this is kind of an interesting. So think about the people that are gathering inside the temple court. Compare that to the people that gathered for Pentecost. Okay? The first time Peter decides to speak publicly and give this you know, invocation of who Jesus is, it's to non-believers, right? All the, the, the Spirit of God falls in on, there, on the 120 that are gathered. They have different tongues. They start to speak to different people. They're basically giving a salvation message. This is not that same group of people. Everyone that's inside that gate would have to be what? A follower of Judaism, right? There's not going to be any Gentiles in that inner court. There's not going to be anybody in there who's not a Jew. So he has a very specific group of people he has a really unique opportunity, and from any of us have ever been around something where there's something going on and people start gathering, the, the tendency is either to get away from the crowd or to dig in. And once again, that same Spirit of God blows through him. That same Spirit of God moves, and Peter says, you know what? This is an opportunity to speak. This is an opportunity to explain to them what is going on, because the reality is they're going to, they all know this person, they know what's going on, but if somebody doesn't clarify and claim what happened, it'll be turned into something else. So in verse 12, we see, what does he do? But he addresses the people specifically, fellow Israelites, right? He identifies them on behalf of himself. He says, hey, look, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Is it surprising you for two reasons? One reason is, because you don't think Jesus can heal anymore? You seriously think he wasn't the Messiah? I mean, you saw him healing nonstop for about three and a half years, right? It, it's bad enough that you saw him do all that and you still don't believe that? Or the second thing you could be believing, you're staring at us because now you think we healed him. Do you think me and Peter and John and I healed him? Because both of these options are not only wrong, but explain something about your heart and how confused and how hardened your heart is, because neither one of those are true. The reality is, John and I are not capable of healing anyone. John and I have no special power, but the reality is what we do have is the faith in Christ now that's been restored. Why? Because you tried to kill him, and you tried to put him away, but we've seen him face to face, and so we can do nothing of our own power. We can do nothing of our own volition and if you think about ultimately what Peter's, uh, Peter's saying here is Peter's saying, I'm denying myself. Here's an incredible opportunity that Peter has in front of the people, his, his people, right? To say, yes, I can do this. This is about me. And look what God has done. But Peter does not forget where he came from. And I think this is a really good teaching point for me to kind of just stop and kind of sit with you guys. It's like the mistakes you've made in your life the person you were before Christ, when you get that opportunity to see who you are now in Christ, you've been forgiven of that person. You've been relieved of thinking that you're now onus as to what that person was. He was a denier and he was a liar. But now he gets to be the denier of himself in front of his own people. And he gets to exalt up this person that he knows has restored faith. Who do you think did this? Us? No way. We couldn't do this of our own thing. But faith in who? Verse 13, Peter confirms the true identity of the Messiah, the God of our fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. When you start dropping names like that in front of a crowd of people, Jewish people like that, he's establishing who he is. Once again, you guys don't know who he is still? How can you not know who he is? How can you not understand the claims that he's made? He's made them so clearly. It's, it's God's glorified son. His new name is Messiah. Why? Because he is the savior of the world. He has taken on the sins of the world. More to come on that in a minute. The reality of this moment for Peter, though, is accountability. Peter gets the opportunity to reconcile that which he had done wrong in his own life because he himself had done something just like this. And because of that now, God has restored him in such a way that he gets the opportunity to, to rebuke, reprove, and exhort. And that comes from 1 Timothy 4. That's an old message I did about three years ago for you guys. The idea that is when you get a chance to speak something to someone that begins to rebuke them. The word rebuke is a term pruning. You guys remember the one I did on pruning? So if you're going to cut something off of somebody and identify something, it has to be biblically based. 
You cannot rebuke someone for that's a personal opinion or your understanding of something. So he's going to rebuke them, he's going to reprove them, and then he's going to exhort them. So this is a beautiful little principle completely laid out. How does he start the rebuke? You. Okay? No, no confusing here, but you handed him over. Remember, if you point at someone, I think what is the old saying? You're pointing at someone, right? It's back at you. We, we handed him over. We disowned him before Pilate, right? Pilate, who's a non-believer, Pilate, who completely doesn't understand what's going on, even Pilate, when he tried to judge him, what did he come up with? Not guilty. I don't see anything wrong with this guy. Are you sure, crowd, this is what you want to do? This guy? And then they begin to yell for Barabbas to be released. We did, we did that. We decided, and we made the decision to put him to the cross. 14, you disown the holy and righteous one. Well, let me tell you something about making a claim like that. Who else denied the holy and righteous one? Amen. So when you get a chance to call somebody out on something that you yourself have already done, you better be in a good place. You better be in a place where you understand humility. You better eat enough humble pie to realize something. You're about to call your fellow Israelites out when you yourself got completely called out. Because the way that you denied him wasn't just, oh, accidentally. Oh, don't you hang with those guys? Oh, those guys, no. I, I wasn't sure what guys they were talking about. Clarification. Yes, you, you're the one that hang out with that Jesus guy of Nazareth. No, I don't know Jesus of Nazareth. A secondary denial. And then the third one, you, I know for a fact that you're running with Jesus of Nazareth. And explicatives use, I do not associate with Jesus of Nazareth. From that restoration to this, you, fellow Jews, you disown the holy and righteous one. Like, I don't know about you, but this is what just is so shocking to me about sometimes. I mean, this is a bold statement, right? This is beyond bold. This is bold and confident. And the only boldness this man had before was arrogance to think that he could chop off the high priest's ear. Somebody once said that the uh, metal helmets that they wore back then were kind of these pointed like super domes. That the only thing that would have happened is if you struck hard enough against the dome, the ear slot would pop out. And then so the ear would pop out. It was like a, a failure of the helmet. So you tried to slash at the head. And because of the point being like, everyone, why the helmets are like that? It's so that the sword strike will hit that and then deflect off. And so it was hard enough to hit the helmet, but enough to deflect in and lop the ear right off. This is the boldness that that guy had. Right? I'm going to kill somebody with Jesus, the, the Son of God standing next to me, and an entire Roman legion of a hundred trained, I'm going to go after him. And now he gets to go after him with his words. And now he gets to go after him with the Spirit of God speaking from him. Boy, there's another teachable moment I can share with you guys. You know, you want to go after somebody, the last thing you need to go after someone with is anything physical. Our greatest attribute of war is prayer. Our greatest way to knock down Walls Church is when we lift somebody up spiritually to the Lord and say, you move, you knock down the walls, you strike the blow that will wake this person up. And when he tells them, you killed the holy and righteous one, I'm sure there's some silence going on in the, in the temple courtyard. That's a pretty serious accusation. And he transitions to, and you ended up asking for a murderer. You wanted Barabbas to be released? Barabbas would be like asking for Joseph Stalin or Adolf Hitler or whatever. He was, he was renowned for his murderous behavior, and he was renowned for his rebellious nature. All he wanted to do was destroy and overthrow everything. That's who he wanted? Instead of this guy who'd been healing and doing these miraculous things for three, over three years? Verse 15. Maybe I haven't got your attention yet, so let me just say this. You killed the author of life. Man, this is, I don't know, I'm, I, I feel like sometimes I'm too bold. Like my wife tells me that my empathy meter is like right here in life, right? She's like, you know, Jeff, sometimes you could tune it up a little and whatever. It's like, but there's something about God's word, church. There's something about saying what needs to be said to cut to the quick of the matter. And the Jewish people were the selected people by God, and yet they had the opportunity to receive the Messiah, and the Messiah came to them, and he presented himself, and he laid everything out, and they denied him. 
And we, the benefactors, the Gentiles that we are, we are the benefactors of them denying him. But we do the same thing. I mean, it seems like God has laid his his son out so many times in front of us, and yet we do the same thing. We ask for a murder. We promote people in life that are completely in opposition to anything that's biblical. So do we too stand guilty of killing the author of life? But that's not the final say, right? He says, that's what you intended and that's what you did. But God raised him from the dead. And one of the things I can tell you is this is we're all witnesses to that. So what you intended for malice, what you intended for destruction, God has allowed for good. Boy, Romans 8 is not just a passage I hope you use and whack people with. I mean, Romans 8, when it comes to God's word and seeing how some of these accounts in the Bible play out, it's just like it's just like it's mind blowing. The fact that they could think that they did all this stuff, the fact that they thought they destroyed him. And the reality is he's alive and he is well. And now what? The whole world can see. What can they see? That by faith in the name of Jesus, this man was healed. Peter goes back and reestablishes the story. So let me tell you, yes, he was healed. But not only was he healed, but he was healed by something specifically the name of Jesus. Did you catch that in the account? He said, in the name of Jesus, right? What can you and I learn from that? That we can still see miracles today if we ask for them in the name of Jesus, right? The power to heal, the power to save is a a faith component of an individual accepting and believing who God is, and not only does it restore this individual, but it made him completely whole. I like how the beginning of the passage said, holding on to their arm. Did you catch that back in the very first passage on 12 when I opened it? Verse 11, why the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished. Small little nuance, but did you catch that? You know, if you hadn't walked for 40 years and someone restored your parts and pieces, it's called muscle atrophy, right? It's called all these different things like you don't even remember. I'm imagining the guy's probably doing like the Charleston up there, like his legs are just like flopping all around him and he's like, what is going on with my body? I mean, it's working, but how is it working? I had a chance to see another one of our famous people in town, Bobby, this weekend, and, you know, he was on Bay Street for many years pushing his cart. He's really, really slowed down, and I couldn't imagine what happens if Bobby walked into the church one day, someone we have all seen in a kind of an incapacitated, hunched-over, slow shuffle, and was jumping and dancing and praising God. It would be astonishing, right? The California rubbernecking, rednecking, and all of us who likes to see an accident and slow down on this side of the freeway, and it's over here. Can you imagine if something that, like, came in front of us? We would all gather, right? We would all want to see. And Peter sees this crowd, and he's like, I got to speak to him. He doesn't start talking about the powers of the miracle or how amazing it is. He starts addressing the crowd, and he's going after them. Boom, boom, boom. Reprove, reprove, reprove. Rebuke, rebuke, rebuke. So what do they need to do? Because if all you do is rebuke, that's not biblical, right? He's called them out on every single capacity, but what does he need to do now? He needs to reprove them. He needs to give them something. So you can see now, right? We can all agree. You can see this man, the same guy who's been sitting at the gate for 40 years, has been healed. So what is it about? <coughs> who did it? In the name of Jesus, he was, he, was, he was done. In the name of Jesus, fellow Israelites, this man was made whole. And the reason why you don't understand what Jesus did is the same reason your forefathers and our leaders did not understand, because you acted, verse 17, you acted in ignorance. Now, this brings me to another kind of an interesting point in the message. If somebody acts in ignorance, does that mean they're not accountable? No. Okay? If you stopped at a stop sign 49 times in one week, But today, because the weather was gray and gloomy, and like Pastor Jeff, you were a little bit sleepy, and just feel like the time was finally right, and you owed, and so it was ignorant, or whatever it was, but you drove through that stop sign, and today was the day you not only caused an accident, but you caused, Lord forbid, you know, fatality or something like that. You don't get a chance to stand in front of the judge and say, 49 times I stopped for five seconds, beyond everything, with my hands at 9 and 12, looking left, right, and left. It's of no credit to you, right? Your ignorance about a situation when you've done something wrong is not accredited to you. So he says, 
fellow Israelites, I'm trying to show you compassion. I'm trying to show that I understand. But let me tell you something. There's only one way to make it through this rebuke. There's only one way I can now reprove you and tell you what you need to do. Verse 18. You need to understand something, that God has now fulfilled prophecy in the Messiah. You thought you would make him suffer. You thought you would kill him. You you can't make God suffer. Church, right? Think about that, right? Can we make God suffer? Can we No, Jesus willingly went to the cross. Nobody made Jesus go to the cross. He willingly went to the cross because it was his father's will. And because it was his father's will, what you intended for wrong, God has used for good. And so now you only have one way out. You want to know what you can ultimately offer your friends who are non-believers? You want to know what you can ultimately offer someone has come to their point in their life where they realize they're at odds with God? There's only one thing I can offer to reprove the rebuke that has been offered. Verse 19 says this, repent, right? Repent, turn around, 180, repent, no longer face in the direction you're going, and move towards God. That's it. If you don't repent of what you're doing and move completely in the opposite direction towards God, then the rebuke that I've placed upon you will stand. And the rebuke that is upon you, you will face in front of the Lord God himself one day in that beam of seed of judgment, and there will be no opportunity for it to be removed. As harsh as God's word is sometimes, the reality is hell is harsher, right? Let's just call a spade a spade, right, if that's what we're going to do. You know what, Pastor Jeff, sometimes when you speak, it feels not so loving when you're calling people out about heaven and hell. Really, because you know what sounds unkind to me? is allowing someone to think that heaven and hell are just figments of our imagination, right? As much as I believe in heaven, up there now, down here one day, totally rest restored the way that it was intended to be, hell I also believe in, because Jesus said it's real. So if Jesus said it's real, then the only thing that I have to offer you is the truth on both of that. And if you don't repent, if you don't teach repentance to your friends, if you don't share repentance in your testimony about how you repented and turned from your old life and then turned to God, then you have nothing to reprove the rebuke that's been offered. Because the only way you can draw close to someone is to say, in repentance, what does God do? The rest of this in verse 19 then the God who loves you, then the God who forgives you, he then blots out or wipes away your sin. Now, depending on your Bible translation, some of you may have blotted out, some of you may have wiped out, but let's take a moment to clarify this verbiage. This is why sometimes, I think there's about 36 different Bible translations currently out there right now. Um, Bible translation can be very informative on something like this because blotted out is a weird word. If your Bible says blotted out, so... So this is a page, and it has like um, 250 characters on it. Let's say that. If I begin to blot out the characters of this passage, and I took like a small pen with ink on it and started blotting out the way you think of blotting, right? I would cover the first word with blots of ink, and then the second word, and then the third word, and then blot, 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 right? If this was blotted out, when this is all blotted out, you know what this would be? An ugly mess, Right? This would be a detestable piece of paper that no longer has any value or significance or usefulness ever again. It's just a blotted out mess of, wow, it's still there, but it's blotted out. That is a representation, by the way, of the Old Testament. That's all the Old Testament sacrificial system could do was blot out your sin, right? It says that verbatim in the Old Testament. This is not the way to, this is not going to get rid of them. This is only a covering. It uses the word, this is a covering of the sin, right? That's not what he says. He says they're wiped out. And when they're wiped out, this is dry erase board, right? This is a white dry erase board, or this is this motion, okay? And when this is done, this is a bright, shiny, new dry erase board. Why is that so important? You get to start over, right? You're a clean. You, how can you be a new creation in Christ if you're blotted out? That doesn't feel clean. That feels dirty. That feels like it's still there, and I'm kind of reminded of it. But if it's wiped out, I have the chance to be rewritten. Peter, before Jesus Christ is coming back after the uh, resurrection, Peter, after the resurrection, nonstop, dedicated, motivated. The results of being wiped out is as far as the east is from the west. Okay, this is old teaching for me, I know, but it's clarified. 
North and south are poles. They're placed by human beings every year because the ice moves, but they're quantifiable positions that you can then go to with the GPS stand on. There's a marker. It says North Pole. Then you could measure it and go all the way down, and you can stand on it South Pole. It may seem tremendous amount of distance, but if that's what you had in a lifetime, how long would it take you to measuring sin to use that up? Then what about the rest of your life? If God's still measuring, you're outside of that. You're now in big trouble. In other words, God's not measuring your sin anymore because east and west are infinite. You can go as far east as you want starting today, and 100 million thousand years from now, you'll still be going east. Okay? Because that's what God's word said. Now, that's important to us. That can only come from what? From the rebuke that comes from calling out on the sin that we've done. We did it. You put him before Pilate. Pilate said he's nothing wrong. What do you want? We want the murderer. We did that. We, our legacy is <coughs> people did that. And the reproof is, okay, the only way that you can now restore this broken relationship is to repent. And what happens from that? The rest of verse 19 says this. The results of this is a time of refreshing that comes from the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but if you haven't been refreshed in a while, if you felt kind of overwhelmed, we all kind of feel like there's places that we can go and things that we do that refresh us. Like, we know that we need that. I know for sure, for me, when I'm sitting on the wall down at Corona Del Mar, I pay my, you know, 17 or $21 for parking for seven minutes. I feel very blessed to do that. <laughs> I don't feel refreshed then, knowing that the parking lady's driving around with a flashing red light, and it's $63 if I don't pay the $21. So I'm trying to get past that refreshing I load up all my gear, which can be a little cumbersome, and I'm walking down the wall. But when I get about halfway down to the inlet between, you know, the wedge on the other side and where Corona Del Mar is, and I sit down on that, and this, that's kind of where the sun goes and everything, I, I don't hear nobody. I don't see nobody. I don't feel anybody. I just feel like, wow, how blessed am I to have this place to sit and throw out a line? And if I catch something, great, but if I don't, I mean, it's like refreshing, Right? This is the same kind of concept that he's talking about here. There's a refreshing that comes from the Spirit of God when we reconcile those things that are wrong. Nobody wants to be under rebuke. Nobody wants to be reproved by God. But thank goodness this passage shows us that not only is he trying to offer this to him, but he's saying, hey, look, there's a reason why we go through this. And the end result is that your soul actually is refreshed. You have a clean white slate, you have a refreshed soul, and you're ready to go. But do they heed the warning? Verses 20 through 22 tell us this, that the, the Messiah was promised to them, and the Messiah came to them, but they did not respond, okay? Now they have to wait for what? Now they have to wait for the millennial reign and the second reign and all these other things because there will be a time when they possibly do respond, but now their time and their opportunity to respond is now going to be moved, and what we'll notice in the book of Acts is from this point on that Peter's direct line of messaging to the Jews is now going to shift. He's going to shift gears and he's going to transition to speaking to Gentiles. And verse 3 warns them with one final warning. Anyone who does not listen will be cut off. Church, a turning point occurred in the Jewish history and it's made it very difficult for them so that for someone today in Jewish faith to come to the Lord is very small. One to three percent, I think, are the official records. So only one to three percent of people that have grown up, messiah, grown up in the Jewish faith will actually be able to make that transition to see Jesus as the Messiah. But we are completely blessed by that because now we, the Gentiles, have been grafted into that branch. But ultimately, what it leads me to is this response for you. Is the reality is that there's a time and a place where God's word will come to each one of us. There's a time and a place where God's word will be presented to us in such a way that it's overwhelming, like it was to Pilate. There's a time and a place where each one of us will have to make a decision about what we're going to do with this person now called Messiah, this person now called Savior, God's Son. And he tells him in verses 24 through 26, even though Samuel was blessed and Samuel was promised and all the prophets came to him and told him about the Messiah, you did not respond. Even though Abraham was blessed and the descendants of Abraham have been numerous like the promise, you did not respond. And now all the people of the earth are being blessed, but now all the people are not being blessed by the relationship that God intended for you. The, mess the Messiah was sent to you, but ultimately you have this upon you. You still rejected to him. 
now we Gentiles have this opportunity. What will we, we do with the mantle that God has now placed upon us? What will we do with this Messiah that has been given to us? Speaking the name of Jesus today is still difficult. Speaking the name of Jesus today may still result in people not liking you. And so I share with you one final point from this passage and tell you simply this. If, if people liking you is ultimately what you're after, if you're ultimately after a like with your post, if that still mindset is still something you're after, you're in big trouble, okay? Because ultimately they did not like Jesus. Ultimately they did not respond to Jesus. And ultimately the world as we know it today is still rebelling against Jesus. If you think about some of the audacities that we see in the society that we live in today, think about what they're in direct opposition to. Right? If they're in direct opposition to anarchy, then it doesn't bother anybody. If there's no rules, no regulations, and no one's in, in charge, then who cares how we're living? It's just a matter of uh, hierarchy anyways. You know, the, the strongest survive. If that's the mindset you give into, then it shouldn't bother you. But it does bother us, and we know it's not right. So what is it that the world's actually rebelling against? God's commandments right? The golden rule that the world wants to say is this golden rule that wherever you live, all societies kind of have this monitoring system. That we, that's, that's God's word. There's no other golden rule other than God's word. And so what are they ultimately going to respond to? They're going to have to respond to this. Jesus has been presented, and the Bible says that he will not return until every single person has heard and had the opportunity to understand and make a decision. And because of the information society we have, and because of the internet, and because of the way things are folding, information's folding, I have a feeling that timeline is growing exponentially. But until every single person is heard, until every person has had that opportunity, we still have a small window left. We still have a small window left to do what? To rebuke the world in such a way, in love, to let them know that we did it, okay? We're responsible for it. When someone says to you, well, if God is love, why does this happen? Right? If you don't have that basic apologetic in your own vernacular established, if you don't have that basic defense of your own faith, if you don't understand, because let's just take something really quick on off book, and I'm not trying to ask for 400 emails about this, but is it possible for a gun really to kill somebody by itself? Okay. You know what kills people every single year that people haven't really complained about? Hippos. Hippos. They're, they're, made, they're killers. Every single year, hippos wipe people out. I was talking to my daughter about this last night. You know what else kills people? Vending machines. Yeah, people rocking them, pulling them on them. You know what the fastest growing kind of new thing is? Selfies. About 22 people a day worldwide die doing, doing selfies. If you want to pick something to get rid of, we should get rid of us. We are the cause. Of, you can find anything dumb, stupid, or whatever... Whatever implement of death we get rid of, a stick has killed people, right? A rock has killed people. It doesn't matter what the implement of death is. It still needs someone to operate it. And the operators and the function of sin and evil in the world is not a holy God who made a beautiful place. Amen? We are the implements of death. We are the implements of sin. And what Paul is ultimately calling people out to, and it's the last thing I'm going to share with you today, I just think it's good for us to call ourselves out. When next time you look in the mirror, you might think, hey, looking pretty good for whatever I got left. And that is great. I hope you do feel good about yourself. But would you also see yourself for the sinner that you are, the sinner saved by grace? And like Peter, eat that humble pie, eat that crow that you know that it was you that denied him. Okay, I've denied him. I've, I have completely failed him. That's my motivation in life is not to act like someone else is now I'm responding to someone else. I'm indebted to the spirit of God for the clean slate that I've been given, when I know what my slate looked like. To me, it's more blotted out. It's easier for me to see a blotted out slate. That makes more sense. But I have to Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 and lean not into my own understanding and make peace with the fact that God says, no, Jeff, it's wiped out. Now, Romans 8 for you. What does Romans 8 say? There's no condemnation for those in Christ. Now, go out there today, choose this day who you will serve, and make a difference for the kingdom of God. And church, that's the challenge that Peter's ultimately giving them. You see a miracle, you see something miraculous, you see people gathering. I don't care if it's two or three people, but when you see people gathering and you see an opportunity to speak, look for ways to speak Christ. Look for ways to speak truth. Because if we don't, not only do we miss out on the opportunity, but heaven and hell are ultimately in the balance of this thing, right? 
It's not so we can win and make friends and have power or prestige. Peter says, do you think we did this? No. Peter has every moment at this time, after Pentecost, every moment to stand and say, God, king, you know? No. You think we did this? No. This is the act of the name that we proclaim. It's the same name that you and I proclaim. This is an act of the name of Jesus, the Nazarite that you guys said, nothing good comes from Nazareth. This is that man right here. By that name, this man was healed. And by the way, Luke, who wrote this, just food for thought, when it, that healing, if you didn't catch that last week, the way he spoke that in Greek, it wasn't just like a healing. It was like a medically speaking, a miraculous melding of the bones and healing. Like it had all this weird Greek verbiage in there that, that's been translated, he, he was healed. But Luke says, no, like medically speaking, he was fully restored. Okay? Isn't that cool to know that God, if God built it, he can recreate it. And he will recreate us one day to be anew. And he will recreate us one day to live in this world in peace. But in the meantime, final word, there's a time and a place where it's going to knock on your door. If you don't answer, it doesn't mean that you won because he went away. It means you lost. And what you now risk is ultimately is heaven and hell. Find the time and a place to go back to your friend's house and restore that invitation to them to say, hey, look, Jesus loves you. He's there. But if you don't want to choose him, he doesn't kick the door down and come busting in, right? It's a decision that you make to say, forgive me of my sins and to repent of what? Of your old life before Christ. Amen. And finally this, church. The timeline of how the things are happening in the world is sped, has been seriously sped up. I remember when we were kids, um, there was translators Wycliffe, like the people that are translating or whatever, they say there was still like 240,000, you know, vocabularies that were spoke. So they all had to have the Bible before the Lord could get back. I'm like, hey, we got some time, right? We actually have people in our uh, missions things that are translators. It, it's getting small. I think recently like under 5,000. I want to say like two or 3,000 left. It's getting smaller. And what happens is when that window closes and that, that means the Bible is now in every known language, <clears throat> because of how the internet works and all that stuff, it will ultimately be a door that, if you're growing up in like my generation, where we were told these things have to happen first, right? Until those things happen, it couldn't happen. But church, it's getting close, okay? And when that final Bible is handed to that last language barrier, and then there is no language left, known language left, that does not have a copy of the Word of God, then that sand in the hourglass is getting real small, which means the last time you invited someone to church or the last time you shared your testimony is now something you got to make peace with. And what you need to remind yourself today in hearing a passage like this is today. Choose this day who you will serve, right? As for me and my house, let's serve the Lord. You, it's time to rally faith again. It's time to rally salvation again. It's time that we start doing baptisms instead of once or twice a year, like once a month. It's time that we start making the main thing the main thing in the church. And we're not here to talk about political issues. We're not here to talk about all those other things. Those things are all going to take care of themselves. If we make the main thing the main thing, right? Peter's not using this to talk about it. The main thing is the name of Jesus. And if we make the main thing the name of Jesus, then not only is salvation in the wings, but repentance is in the wings and a changed life, metanoia, a changed life is potentially in the wings. And ultimately, that's what you represent sitting here today. Each one of you is a changed life. You all know what you did, B.C. You all know who you are, denier, just like Peter. You all know who you are before Christ. But he wiped that slate clean, and he gave you a chance to be something new. So as I call the band back up and I pray, I just want to encourage you this morning. Don't take anything for granted other than the fact that you made it here today, and you're being reminded that the time is short, the need is great, the harvest is plenty, but the workers are few. Let's rally. Let's get past the distractions of our own inequities and our, our, faith, our, uh, our frailties and our body components and all these other things and say, that's okay, we have all that. But what can I do today to build the kingdom of God? Father God, I come before you this morning and I simply pray that you would restore us anew. <clears throat> I'm sure hearing this message from Peter was not easy. I'm pretty sure that hearing any message from God that calls this out is not easy. But did we sign up for easy or did we sign up for significance? And I would just pray, Father, that you restore the church to significance, that you would restore each person here physically and each person even listening to the message this morning, that you would remind them that, that we're better together than we are apart and that we need to be together on the week and we need to rally because we can. 
And in that rallying, we're reminded of all the people that have gone before us, all the people that have gone before us and failed, and all the people that have been restored, and yet somehow each one of these disciples was able to die a martyr's death. How is that possible? They all went back to their old careers. They all ran from their faith, and now they're able to die in these horrific deaths because there was a confidence that was restored to them in seeing the risen Christ that made them realize that there's nothing. What can man do to us? Man can do nothing to us. Who is it that ultimately controls the soul? But you, Father, and you control our soul, and we are yours, and we are changed people because of it. And I pray this morning, Father, there's someone in the building, someone online that doesn't know that they're changed. If someone's still feeling blotted out and not wiped clean, then I pray right now, Father, in the name of Jesus, restore them. Replenish that which has been taken from them. Refill that dry soul, Father, with the word of God, with the spirit of God. And would you just remind us today of the people that are around us and the relationships that are around us and the opportunities that exist to not only proclaim the name of Jesus, but see victory in the kingdom of God. Father, we do it all in your son's precious and holy name. Amen. Dang, that was some uh, good food for thought. I want to talk about this. You know, sometimes when we're doing these songs where um, you think about the song you're going to do for this week. And this one hit right on because it's one of Jeff's favorite lines as well. But um, we need to set a fire in our hearts because, man, this world gets way confusing. And uh, we need to put Christ first. Then all the evangelism, everything else takes place. It, it just happens. Um, but that has to be number one.